0: Hello, and welcome to a special statewide edition of Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael. We've got a big show on tap for today. We're going to – we hope that you'll join us as we discuss September 11th, uh, the terrorist attacks and how Indiana has changed since uh, those attacks 10 years ago. You can call us at any time during the program with your questions. Our number is – Eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington. Uh, if you are listening outside of South Central Indiana, you can call us on our toll free line eight seven seven two eight five. WFIU. You can also email your questions or join our online chat on our website at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We're going to be uh, joined by four guests today. We have two with us in the studio right now. Uh, they are sociologist Bob White, who specializes in terrorism and political violence. Bob is a sociologist at IUPUI, and also Mark Hamm, who specializes in criminology theory Terrorism and Public Policy at Indiana State University. He was a guest on Noon Edition 10 years ago. It was a Friday after the 9-11 attacks, which were on a Tuesday, and we had um, Mark in with some other guests on that following Friday. We have two more guests who are going to be joining us later on. Um, One is 9-11 Commission Vice Chairman Lee Hamilton, who now lives in Bloomington, he is en route uh, to our studios from the airport. Um, He's been obviously a very busy man this week, been uh, much uh, in demand by Mm -hmm. media outlets all over, so we're very happy to have him joining us later on in the program. And also Secretary General for the Islamic Society of North America, Safa Zarzur, will be joining us on the phone for a few minutes uh, to provide his perspective on how things have changed for Muslim Americans in the last decade. So uh, again, let me give our phone numbers 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-WFIU or 9348 for those of you who don't uh, cotton to the the, uh, alphabet. So those numbers are where you can call us. You can also go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So, Bob, Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Mary Catherine, good to see you as always. Hi, Bob. Um, let's talk about uh, you know the last ten years. Mark, you were here ten years ago. We were just sort mm. of reminiscing. Doesn't we're seem
1: possible. Recalling like five. You
0: know, some of the some of the things that came up that day during the program. But how have things changed in in you know the decades since you know I know you've done a lot of work on Timothy McVeigh, homegrown terrorism, mm. those kinds of things. How have how how has your academic uh, life changed in the last ten years? Uh, well, obviously,
2: like everyone else, I became interested in uh, the Islamic radicalization movement, um, learned more about the Middle East, more, learned more about the, the wars, obviously. Uh, I think the biggest shift in my uh, career has been the radicalization of prison inmates and, and, and how the prison has become sort of a hub of, of the new jihad, if you will. Um, and not just for uh, Muslim inmates, but for white supremacists as, as well. Uh, and, you know, the prison has always been a, a, a place where uh designed for transformative experiences. And over the 10 years, some of these transformative experiences have been radicalized, uh, radicalized in nature. So, uh, and then, you know, trying to trace, you know, the, the, there's nothing illegal about becoming radical uh, in prison, but... Uh, see how that manifests itself in, in terrorist acts, which has been, been much more difficult. Mm-hmm.
0: Bob, how, how's your uh, study of terrorism
3: changed in the last 10 years? Well, my, f- my focus in studying political violence is primarily on the Irish Republican movement, mm-hmm. and the movement uh, had already splintered by the time of 9-11 in multiple ways. The primary effect of 9-11, I think, on a group like the provisional IRA and provisional Sinn Fein was to convince them uh, they'd already been involved in a peace process, and to convince them very much to pursue that peace process with a process with abandon, if you will. Uh, for the other groups, who would include, um, say, the the real IRA and the Continuity IRA and their their political wings, um, it didn't have as much of an effect as you, you might expect. I'm not an authority on Al Qaeda. And groups like that, although like everybody else, you you start paying attention to those groups if you're Mm -hmm. involved in a study of political violence. But I I think uh, to some degree, 9-11 had a significant effect on some groups. Uh, The larger the group, perhaps, the more effect it had, the more uh, a group like uh, the PLO, for example. But smaller groups, um, uh, perhaps more insulated – it had less of an effect on them mm-hmm. so
0: I, I want to get right to a big question are mm-hmm. we safer now than we were 10 <clears throat> years ago when it comes to terrorism
2: well most people will say that we are i um, think but the 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 threat has morphed i mean we have um the, with this homegrown uh terrorist phenomenon uh, leaderless resistance uh, some call it or leaderless jihad um, these are small groups who have never uh, been to Afghanistan for training, but nonetheless uh, have been inspired by bin Ladenism and have um, turned to you know terrorist ta- tactics in an attempt to to seek Al Qaeda's blessing. So that that's a phenomenon we did not see, or as I guess, as a post nine uh, eleven development. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's the the rise of lone wolf terrorism, which we we 've always had lone wolf terrorism uh, in the United States, but it 's been very sporadic and we've seen we 've seen uh, certainly an upsurge in that and it 's become more deadly The uh, Nadal Hassan and the Fort Hood shooting probably is the one that most listeners would uh, be familiar with. But there have been numerous others, um, and there have been assassination assassination attempts against uh, U.S. leaders that don't get much pr- play in the press. But certainly the FBI uh, is, is very familiar with these. And again, the, these come out of this this sort of lone wolf, these standalone jihadists, uh, who again are inspired by the um, propaganda and the audio tapes of Bin Laden and, and Zawahiri. And, uh, and and this is uh, this has been a motivation for them. That's that's also, I think, a new development.
1: What's a good working definition of a jihad for those of us who are listening to this? Well,
2: uh, uh, it, inner struggle or outer. There's an you know, the inner jihad, outer jihad. I mean, it is it is a struggle uh, that one undertakes uh, uh, as a, a religious journey.
1: With a promised reward at the end? That's certainly something that many of us tend to associate with when we hear that someone –
0: In short terms, yes.
1: Yeah. Okay.
3: Okay. Bob, are we safer now? Uh, Not necessarily. I I mean, I very much – I don't disagree with anything you've said. I think to a degree it depends on who you ask – You know, who gets the question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think in a place like Indiana, for example, um, we probably weren't all that threatened to begin with. And so in a sense, there hasn't been probably all that much change from the people who gave us 9-11. There are other groups. You mentioned lone wolf terrorists, for example. I mean, there are other groups in the United States, white supremacists, what have you, who have been active throughout this time period. And I think we can't ignore the fact that if we're going to talk about political violence, we can't just focus on violence that emanates from the Middle East. In terms of a city like New York or something, they may – yeah, I mean I think a case could be made that uh, they aren't as safe as they used to be. And I think uh, very much that's a function of the two wars that we engaged in which would have led to the radicalization of a large body of people who would never have been radicalized without those wars. You can't engage in shock and awe without alienating a large number of people and you 're going to kill people, and they 'll have relatives if you if my research on the Irish Republican movement informs my commentary and what you find if you look at uh, people that joined extreme groups in Italy, groups in Ireland, and such there 's often a family connection or a close friend connection uh, it It follows very much through almost all social movements and the literature and so when you Bomb a city like Baghdad, and you kill scores of people you're going to create victims, and some of those victims are going to be quite open to getting involved in violence directed against the united states mm-hmm. yeah your your um, one of the things on your bio is is how
0: you you have studied these groups to learn why they view the world the way they do and why they choose the acts that they they use to to spread their influence. Could you expand on that a little bit
3: well. Much of it comes down to how you view people who engage in things like 9-11 or blowing up the Birmingham pubs in 1974. And from a traditional perspective, such people were marginal. They were on the fringe. They were alienated from Western society uh, or Western values, if you will, and so forth. From another perspective, um, they're calculating – if not rational, they're rational in their own sense – actors. So if you look at 9-11, and I'm not being flip, but we can look at someone like Osama bin Laden as an evil genius. And Mohammed Atta and the other uh, perpetrators presumably viewed themselves as soldiers. And they knew they were going to die. It was a calculated uh, risk that they took. And in many ways, it was successful. So arguably, people who engage in some of these in these behaviors uh, think it will have an effect. And if you look at the United States today versus 10 years ago, it certainly did have an effect.
4: Mm-hmm. All
0: right. You're mm-hmm. listening to a special uh, statewide edition of Noon Edition from WFIU here in Bloomington. We have two guests with us in the studio, Bob White, a sociologist from IUPUI, and Mark Hamm, who's a sociologist from Indiana State University in Terre Haute. We're also uh, being joined on the phone now. Uh, we're being joined on the phone by Safa Zarzour, who is the um, Secretary General for the Islamic Society of North America. He's joining us uh, from Chicago, I believe. So thank you for being here with us today.
5: Thank you. Thank
0: you for having me. Sure. I want, you know, we're talking about this 10th anniversary of 9-11, and I, I wondered, you know, if, if there's – I know it's a, it's a big question to ask, but how has this changed the life of uh, Muslims in the United States since the, the attacks of 10 years ago?
5: It actually changed the lives and 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 the situation for the Muslim community in a very big way. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, people perhaps many times do not realize the fact that you know the Muslim community really was hit with nine eleven twice. The first is that it is one of the groups that got affected by nine eleven as as Americans. Uh, when you look at at uh, people who who died on 9-11, of the 2,972 people or 71 people, um, it is, I believe, uh, confirmed that 31 were Muslim. That is about twice as much as our average as Muslims in the population. Obviously, the terrorists, when they attack, they can care less about the fact that they are targeting Muslims as well, because they they don't even have affinity with us. Yet, unfortunately, the reaction from many within the United States is that uh, you know, you have the religion that these people claim, so you must be somehow, if not, you know, uh, um, what do you call it? Part of it, you are sympathetic to it. We can blame you by extension. And as a result, uh, Muslims since nine eleven have had to, to live really a different life. I mean, if, if I can uh, briefly say that... Prior to 9-11, as a Muslim, I've always viewed and I always read about Catholics and how they have come a long way, you know, becoming part of the American fabric and and, and other groups, Jews, others, Mormons. And I always felt uh, up until then that that we are just going through the same growing pains, same normal Mm -hmm. development of a religious community becoming part of the fabric. And 9-11 really came to, to very much put that into huge doubt as we saw, uh, unlike, by the way, the initial reaction of people that was very quintessentially American. That is, let's pull together. We can rise above this. We are all together. But that lasted only about four to five months before we started having those groups that have always had uh, extreme hatred uh, and and phobia towards Muslims. Uh, But before they were identified as extremes. Their voices were not listened to or they were never taken seriously. After 9-11, all of a sudden, they became the experts on on Muslims. All of a sudden, we had groups that have political and religious motivations to demonize Muslims, becoming part of the mainstream debate. And all of a sudden, we are hearing the question, can you be an American and a a good Muslim at the same time, good American and good Muslim? So it changed a lot. Uh, Having said that, I just yesterday attended... Uh, 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 an event in Washington DC, uh, a campaign that we at ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, have. Uh, called Shoulder to Shoulder, uh, we had 26 different religious denominations, including people like Eric Yafi, Rabbi Eric Yafi, who is the, the, the uh, head of the, uh, the Union of Reform Judaism in the U.S., plus the, the Gregory, uh, Bishop Gregory of Washington, D.C., uh, that really stood there and reaffirmed that we as a country uh, uh, stand for freedom of religion, freedom of expression. We are we are special, we are unique, and we will we will uh, not allow something like this ten years later to divide us anymore. And that Muslim Americans are part and parcel of the fabric of America, and that and that we need to move forward together, fighting the scourge of, of of terrorism and extremism, as opposed to letting it divide us the way it did for quite a while in the past ten years.
1: Are things getting better for members of the islam uh, Muslim community
5: I would say it is i i, I mean in all fairness it is in and, and, and by the way i mean I, I have to point to to something that we have known in the Muslim community once we once we kind of got our bearing as far as the you know, the the attacks that were from everywhere on us as a community, on our faith, on what we stand for, the doubting of our loyalty, the doubting of our ability to be part and parcel of the fabric of America. Once that we, we kind of understood, we started realizing that it is not, it is not middle america it is not the average fellow citizen who is doing this that it is a very concentrated concerted effort that is well funded by very specific groups and the the center for american progress came out with a report just a week ago or two that basically uh, showed that these people are very well funded but they are very small very few in numbers but they they have learned how to propagate their propaganda. And unfortunately, they have some help in in some major media centers. Uh, But as far as the rest of the population, our fellow Americans, we see a lot more willingness to listen and learn a lot more understanding for example earlier one of your guests referred to the word jihad and jihadist and you asked him you know i i was very pleased about two years ago listening to the national security advisor to the president john brennan who said and if you notice by the way the government no longer uses the word jihadist or jihad it is used unfortunately widely in media because he said when we the word jihad means struggle means struggle in every respect personal, struggle against, against one's you know, uh, lower instincts, struggle against poverty, struggle against... And it has one dimension that means armed struggle. But even in that respect, I mean, it's a very noble concept. Uh, I mean, I can think of many concepts in Christianity that one can turn demon, you know, demonized because of colonialism or because of other things. And he said that when we use those words, we are giving legitimacy to the terrorists. And we shouldn't. Uh, They are violent extremists. They are terrorists. And let's call them for what they are and not give them legitimacy by using legitimate terms that really are very noble. Uh, within the religion Islam, and, and as long as they have been used, for example, the Prophet of Islam Muhammad says that the best of jihad is telling truth to power, or telling you know standing up for the truth when it's going to hurt you. You know, to me that's a Mahatma Gandhi kind of quote, uh, referring to jihad. And so I think I, I think uh, it, it will help us, and and it helps us that we see more and more, even within government, but also uh, in in academia, uh, people understanding the nature of this, uh, and and people realizing that at the end of the day, the best way we can uh, we can fight it is is to understand each other and isolate the terrorists, uh, whoever they are, because those terrorists have given rise also, and, and Oslo and the action in Oslo that happened. Although, unfortunately, the prime minister of Norway said, uh, we still don't know if it's a terrorist act. That's after 90 people being killed and, 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 and the scene looking almost like 9-11. He said, we don't know if it's a terrorist act. I was, my God... You know what does it take for people to realize that terrorism is an action can be taken by anybody? These people have been conditioned so much that they will always only call it terrorism if it's a Muslim who committed it. Uh, we are moving away from that. Not everywhere, not uniformly, but but we are in a good struggle as Muslims to to show to show uh, put our our best foot forward, and, and also band with, with our fellow Americans to show that this is all of us against terrorism and extremism. Uh, and and there's no other way we can win this battle but to go forward that way.
0: All right, Mr. Z- Zarzur, I appreciate your joining us today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. We're, we're going to let you go. And uh, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thank you. It's my pleasure. And, and, and I wanted to say that, that Muslim Americans today are, are doing two things. They are remembering the victims uh, of 9-11 and, and the horror that our nation suffered. And they are out there. Trying to really do a day of service to to really uh, uh, show their solidarity w- w- with their countrymen as we we commemorate the most horrendous act against our country, and I have no doubt that uh, we will prevail. As Americans, we will prevail in a in a in a in a civilizational. We will prevail, and I'm very hopeful
0: for the future. All right. Thank you very much. That was Safa Zarzour, the Secretary General for the Islamic Society of North America, joining us from Chicago. And joining us in the studio right now is Lee Hamilton. Lee, thanks for being here.
4: Delighted to be with you. All thank right. you
0: very much. Yeah, you, you hustled down from the airport, and we appreciate it. So thank you. You know, I wanted to, to ask you first. It's a question that uh, our reporter, Rod Spall, asked you before in an interview in, in the paper um, that we had earlier this week. But you, uh, have a, as a, I believe, 34-year member of Congress, have seen a lot of things in this nation. And he asked you, you know, how would you rank the events of 9-11 in terms of the impact on the United States? Um,
4: I think the uh, impact of 9-11 has been profound on the United States. In many ways, it's been profound with regard to our individual sense of security, uh, put people more on edge. Uh, They've learned that the United States is vulnerable in some respects. And uh, so it's had a big impact individually. It's had a big impact on government. We've spent an awful lot more money, billions and billions of dollars still spending it. And that will go well into the future. We've reorganized government in many ways. We've changed the culture of the FBI. We've changed the uh, culture of the CIA in many respects. And uh, so the structure of government has been markedly changed and, of course, we've created a whole new Department of Government, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, which now has about a uh, $50 billion budget and going up. Uh, It's had a big impact in the private sector because the private sector has become uh, much more conscious of their own security. And so you have all kinds of uh, buildings that are now uh, made more secure because of 9-11. It's had a profound impact, of course, on our transportation system. It's had a profound impact on our foreign policy. You can just go on and on and on uh, the impact it has. matter of fact, I think you can make the argument uh, that this evil man, Osama bin Laden, has had a a big an impact and our reaction to him uh, on the United States as any other person. Uh, It's remarkable Mm -hmm. when you stop to think about it. Uh, So it's a day that will live in infamy in Roosevelt's words. Every adult will remember precisely where he or she was Mm -hmm. on the, Mm -hmm. uh, the time that it happened. Uh, it's a singular event in the history of the country. All
0: right. You're listening to a special statewide edition of Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington, along with my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael. Uh, we have three guests with us in the studio. You were just listening to Lee Hamilton, the uh, the – Congressman from this part of the state for 34 years, and also the, uh, probably more importantly today, the the vice chairman of the 9-11 Commission, which, uh, a bipartisan commission which studied the events of 9-11, and we're very pleased to have him with us, and also two sociologists, uh, Bob White from IUPUI and Mark Hamm from Indiana State, both study terrorism and, and have a lot to say about terrorism and what led up to, to uh, 9-11. You can join us on the program. By calling 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, which is WFIU from outside of the local calling area. Also, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition is our web address. You can go there to uh, comment or uh, ask a question. So.
1: Yeah, we today on the news, of course, or anytime you turn on the television, this is all anybody is talking about. And I wonder if uh, many folks aren't still left with that feeling what can I, as an individual, do about this. Uh, It seems that we've, you know, aside from uh, submitting to um, unfortunate uh, searches at the airport on uh, on occasion, uh, many of us don't know what to do about this on a daily basis to improve the situation or to um, make ourselves and our families safer. And um, I'd like to get your opinion on, you know, what what can we do?
4: First thing is not to panic. Uh, You have a threat from uh, Al-Qaeda from extremists in that part of the world. And it's a serious threat. It is not an existential threat. And uh, so you have to put it in balance. Every expert I know in the national security community thinks it's likely that we'll be hit again. Um, And we ought not to overstate that, but neither should we fool ourselves. Uh, It's likely that next week or next year or five years from now or ten years from now, they'll get through our defenses. Up to this point, we've been lucky and maybe good and maybe both. We really don't know. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is one of the uh, more serious threats now is the self-radicalization, the Americanization threat, the lone wolf threat from a uh, lone actor who has been radicalized. Uh, This hugely complicates our security problem because what it means is you have to deal with a spectrum of threats from the 9-11 attack to the lone wolf, much tougher to get that lone wolf in Kansas or Indiana. And um, so uh, it, it has increased the law enforcement impact. And this means that Americans have to be alert uh, to what's going on around them. We often speak of the first responders, fire police and so forth, but really they're the second responders. The first responders are people. If you see the guy lighting a – putting a match to his shoe or uh, (laughs) you see the vendor in Times Square Mm -hmm. uh, got suspicious of a car, that's the first line of defense. Mm -hmm. Uh, A third point I'd make – I can go on here, but the third point I'd make is that – we Every community must work through the uh, relationship with the Islamic community in that community. This is a local matter. Uh, President Obama can't solve this problem, and the Congress can't solve it. Uh, the local community has to make sure that they're welcoming to the Islamic uh, people of the Islamic faith. And the more intimately they are acquainted with them, the better defense it is because they, that community, can recognize radicalized persons uh, more quickly. So there's a lot can be done. And if you see suspicious activity above anything, even if you can't figure it all out, report it uh, to the authorities. Uh, so uh, those are a few things that come to mind. Uh, there are many others. Uh,
1: this is a little bit off that topic, but i uh, is there any concern um, from you or others in government about our um, reputation in the international community um, by our reaction to 9-11? Um, how has that uh, been viewed by, by the international community?
4: Well, the American... Uh, position with regard to the Islamic world is pretty bad. Uh, We are held in very low esteem. We're we're in the single digits, I think, in the favorable ratings. So I think uh, one of the big challenges that emerges from all of this is how the United States, how U.S. foreign policy relates to the Islamic world. Most of that world is benign as far as we're concerned, a few extremists. But even with those uh, benign uh, Muslims, if you will, we've got a huge problem. So I think this is uh, not one we're going to solve this afternoon. It's a generational-type problem. Uh, But it's an important one because I don't know how many uh, Islamic faith people there are, a billion, billion and a half, whatever it is in the world. It's a major part of the world's population. And we have to get right with them get in a, a a better relationship than we've had we devoted a whole chapter to this in the 9-11 commission report that that part of the report has not been uh, looked at very carefully
3: mm-hmm. but it's an important part of it
0: bob and and mark want to bring you into the conversation to react to any of this
3: well i i think um, one of the ways to keep us safe and make us safer is that we have to be aware of the threat to civil liberties that was brought about by 9/11, uh, and also we have to be aware of the the danger of, of stereotyping and, and profiling, whether it's respect to Muslims or African Americans or Latinos or you know, what have you. Um, we can undermine who we are and in a sense play into the hands of people who want to harm us if we overreact. And if you look at uh, reports on wiretapping and who's been observed by police and the kinds of peaceful protest organizations and activities that have been observed and infiltrated, it's very disturbing, and I think it's something you know we need to keep in mind. And the other thing uh, I sort of alluded to this earlier – I agree very much that uh, lone wolves are very threatening and they're very real and there's really nothing we can – on some level, there's nothing we can do to prevent terrorism, political violence from ever happening again. But again, uh, on the other hand, um, these things have been with us for a very long time and they predate 9-11 and we have to look at – take perhaps a broader picture and focus not on 9-11, but rather security over time and the issues associated with that.
2: Mm -hmm. Mark? I would uh, quote a Department of Homeland Security report that indicated that the number of attempted uh, terrorist attacks in the United States reached an all-time high in 2010. Now, You can learn a lot from these attempted attacks, and indeed most of them were were small-scale strikes. uh, the uh, New York City, the facade uh, Times Square plot being the one that probably everyone knows the most about. So uh, and that that had some aspects of lone wolf uh, terrorism to it, but uh, he'd also been uh, abroad and had some influence that way, and, inde- and indeed been influenced over the Internet, and that's something we haven't probably talked about is is Internet radicalization. The other point I would make is about grievance. You know, all terrorism begins with a grievance. You know, when you teach this, is is the first thing you put for your students. You know, what, what angers them, right? And, and so uh, uh, within that—and there is not one grievance uh, in the Islamic world today. There are grievances, multiple. At the top of that list is Guantanamo. And even President Obama has said that the number one recruiting tool for jihadists worldwide is Guantanamo. Um, and, and this is this is uh, the subject of great debate, of course, because uh, his first decision uh, when he took office was to close Guantanamo within a year, and now we're two years out, and uh, that remains a festering point. Um, and so that, uh, when we talk about the opinion of uh, the Arab world uh, about the United States, this uh, this is a festering t- leftover. Uh, uh, problem that uh, I think needs to be dealt with in terms of when you try to lower the... lower the ampage out there and the hate or the answer to the question why they hate us that that becomes something that needs to be considered i
0: might uh... mention that you've uh, addressed that in a book also uh... uh high uh, crimes and misdemeanors george w bush and the sins of abu Ghraib, and yeah. there's a, a lot yeah, of that i
2: there. mean you, i mean abu Ghraib hasn't gone away i mean you, you go to the middle east you still see those horrible pictures and bazaars and you, they're all over the internet you know we we think they've gone away but in certain parts of, of the world those images of Abu Ghraib have have replaced the Statute of, uh, of Liberty. It's a horrible thing to hear here in the United States, but that 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 rage and that anger continues to burn.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Bob, I'm going to ask you to wait for just a second, because we have a phone call. So let's go to Dina on the phone. Dina's from Bloomington. So uh, go ahead, Dina. Thank you. This
6: is a question for uh, Representative Hamilton. You mentioned that uh, one of the major effects of 9 11 has been the enormous explosion of spending on security and actions by a variety of agencies and individuals to try to protect their security. Now, I've heard quite a number of responsible investigators and columnists, including what the Pulitzer Prize winner from the Washington Post, allege that what has really happened is that spending on security has. Uh, gone out of control. That there's a vast amount of spending that is very poorly supervised by Congress and by others. Much of the spending, we don't even know what it's doing. It's duplicative, uh, in part owing to a post 9 11 explosion in security and the use of security classification. And that it's not clear how productive that's really been, whether uh, what we're spending on is really what's most important to spend on, whether we're more secure issues like protection of our courts, whether that's really uh, taken care of, um, and that um, as far as the thing that you mentioned about the culture of the FBI and the CIA, that really in many ways it hasn't changed in the sense that uh, there's still a lot of agency secrecy and unwillingness to share information. I wondered if you could comment on uh, these ideas.
4: Well, I think your point is uh, very well taken. With regard to the spending increase, um, I chaired the intelligence committees of the Committee of the House a few years ago, and we had about a ten billion dollar intelligence budget today it's eighty billion that's over a period of about twenty years, I think, so there's been explosive growth just in intelligence and of course elsewhere as well uh, i I spent uh, a good part of the day uh, on uh, Wednesday testifying. And uh, uh, for the first time, I was asked questions along the line of your questions about, is the money we're spending being used effectively? Now, uh, that's a a breakthrough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Up until this time, the security people have won every argument. Uh, They can scare you with their potential threats to the country, and uh, they don't make those up. They have some basis for them. And in the past decade, we have always accepted their argument and spent what they asked us to spend. Put yourself in the place of the policymaker or the president. Yeah. Uh, a, per- a security man comes into to you, uh, spells out a threat. President is sitting there and saying, well, if I spend the money, I've done all I can. If I don't spend it, I'm going to be really criticized if something bad happens. So the natural tendency is to spend the money. OK, we uh, as the caller suggests, with it's just been explosive growth. So the point is, I think we have to get to the point where we uh, push back uh, with regard to the spending increases and with regard to all of the security and ask ourselves, we, we cannot have a risk-free world. It's a matter of risk management. And uh, uh, so you have to accept some risks. You can't protect against everything. Uh, and uh, resources being what they are today, of course, it gets very tight. Uh, Bob, I think, was making the point on civil liberties and privacy. I want to applaud that and second it because another part of my briefing this week was to hear from the security people (laughs) with regard to the astounding capabilities we now have to intrude on your life. Uh, they really are beyond belief when you uh, sometimes I believe in my more pessimistic moods that we have lost the battle for civil rights and, and it 's not not civil rights, civil liberties and privacy. if we haven 't lost it we 're uh, going down a slippery slope and uh, so we need to push back on that as well uh, to protect our core values in this country, one of our principal recommendations in the 9-11 report was to set up a Civil Liberties and Privacy Board. Two people have been nominated, one incidentally from Indiana University, Uh, three have not been nominated, no chairman has been chosen uh, for under the Bush administration and under the Obama administration, nothing has happened of consequence. Uh, For reasons I must say I don't fully understand but we've got to get a robust, strong Civil Liberties Privacy Board to push back when the FBI says national security letters are okay and uh, I have no idea how many are issued. I don't know how many people are tapped. Uh, You just can't find that information out. So the caller makes a good point. Cost-effectiveness, we've got to look at these costs hard. We've got to recognize where we are. And the budget experts now are saying that for the first time, really, that I can remember, at least in a long time, that the national security portions of the budget are going to have to be reduced. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Can I follow up on that? Because you you make a great point about the speed with which government works sometimes. Mm -hmm. You you had a bipartisan commission, five Republicans, five Democrats. You made a recommendation that a five-person board be set up, I assume. And – you know, so far, I mean, how many years later after the report? It's been.
4: Well, we issued the report in 2004. Right. So so,
0: it, so seven years, six, seven right. years. It, it just it seems like that is something that could have happened very quickly.
4: Well, Bob, and, I can't.
0: <laughs> and I don't know why it didn't.
4: Well, I I must say I don't either. I, what, Whether there is some substantial opposition to it within a, an administration Or whether it's just uh, other things are more important, uh, a lack of urgency, whatever, I I don't really know. So I think we have to keep the pressure on. And in my testimony to the Congress and in my visits with people in the executive branch this week, I brought that up every time. Mm -hmm. We've got to push that hard. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you want
0: to call us uh, on the program, we've got 15 minutes left to go. Please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 877-285-WFIU from around the state. Also, you can go to our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Bob, before we had the caller, Dina, I think you had something that you wanted to to say responding to the previous question.
3: Well, I, I think uh, and this kind of follows up on what Congressman Hamilton was uh, noting, I think we also have to be careful about how we define terrorism because that influences how we respond to it. Uh, I, I, don't have, I don't question that the official – that in 2010, the, uh, attempted terrorist attacks at a, a high level. Okay. But um, I think if we look at the history of the United States and we look at the internal – activities that have happened by uh, – been perpetrated by groups like the Ku Klux Klan, and if we define that as terrorism, then it gives us a very different perspective on terrorism in the United States and the response to it. And uh, as Mark said, you know grievances – we, we want to understand you know, grievances. Guantanamo, uh, certainly. Uh, if we define attacks on Muslim citizens of the United States as terrorism – how would we respond to those? And so it goes back again to the to the notion of uh, to the threat to civil liberties. I think we have to take a very careful look at who we are and how we respond to political violence, both uh, as an external threat and an internal threat.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's a difficult question. Getting back to, to motives on on uh, all of this, and I, I wonder, you know, what if. In a, in a strange world that doesn't exist, uh, we could pack our bags and bring everybody home from the Middle East. Would that solve the problem?
4: It'd be a different policy than we've followed <laughs> for a few years, I can assure you of that. We've got a lot of people over there. Uh, I think one of the lessons being drawn from uh, our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan is uh, we're not quite as high on nation-building, <laughs> as we once were. Uh, I can remember the heady days when we went into Iraq and the extraordinary rhetoric about building democracies, uh, civil liberties, privacy and all the rest of it. Uh, Democracy was going to spread through the uh, region and we would have responsive representative governments and all the rest. Uh, We will defeat tyranny was the language that uh, President Bush used in the inaugural speech. Well, we've come up hard against that, and we've seen the difficulties of it. So my guess would be that, look, I I think the American people have put Iraq and Afghanistan in the rearview mirror. We're coming out. Now there's a good debate about how fast and do you leave a small force behind and so forth. That's an important debate. But the direction is very clear. We're coming out. And as Bob Gates said, when he is still secretary, our former IU uh, alum, uh, he said any president that commits uh, troops in that region uh, to support uh, our national security interests as we define them then would have to have his head examined. I don't quote him exactly, but that's about it. So uh, the point you make is a a correct one, if you're making the point. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I I think— we are recognizing the limitations of American power, and we are recognizing that we can't achieve what we want at a price we're willing to pay. Uh, We could do it. We could turn Afghanistan into a a flourishing democracy in Iraq. It would probably take us several generations, (laughs) and it would take us billions and billions of dollars more. So it's a question of Uh, Not just what do we want to achieve, but uh, what are we willing to pay for it? And we have found that the task of bringing these dramatic changes, and my sociology friends would know more about this than that because culture usually trumps politics uh, in the end. I think I may be right about that. Uh, They can correct me. Uh, It's it's going to... uh, Change our way of thinking on the most difficult of all foreign policy problems, which is when do you intervene, and how do you intervene? And I think we're going to come out on the shorter side of that. So
1: your your comment, culture Trump's politics, is very interesting, and, I, and you made some reference to it in your recent interview um, with the the Herald Times uh, writer. But um, I guess my question then is. Uh, Do we need to stop, in your opinion, do we need to stop trying to remake the Middle East in our own image?
4: Well, look, we have interests in the Middle East that are very important. And uh, to be blunt about it, we all know oil. We have to have it. There isn't any doubt about it. If we don't have it, we're not in trouble six months from now or in trouble this afternoon. And every president I have known has defined our interests in that region of the world as vital. Presidents don't use the word vital casually. Vital means vital. So we have to keep that oil flowing. Now, that's not the only interest. We have a very strong interest in Israel. Uh, We have a very strong interest in stability in the region. And as we learned when we ignored Afghanistan for a long time, they whopped us with 9-11 with a little safe haven over in Afghanistan. So here's a country, the most remote in all the world, I guess, in many respects, Uh, that we must not take our eye off. Uh, So we have strategic, economic, humanitarian interests uh, that are very strong. And uh, I don't think it's likely that we will do as you're suggesting, just (laughs) pull out totally. But will we over time decrease our commitment from the type we've had the last decade or more. I think the answer is yes.
1: I'm afraid I have that same oil addiction as uh, everybody else in this room. (laughs) We all have
4: it, I'm afraid, whether we acknowledge it or not.
1: What about Pakistan? None of the three of you have mentioned Pakistan. Do you see that on the horizon as the next threat coming our our way, or is that already...
2: Uh, I can look at it from the point of view of prisons I'm very concerned about in Pakistan. The Pakistan prison system was set up to house about 10,000 convicts. Today, it houses about 150,000. Uh, it houses children as young as 10 years old who are mixed in with uh, ex- religious militants and hardcore criminals. Um, uh, this has a potential to carry on bin Laden's ideas for generations to come. Um, the, beyond that, they're horribly managed. I mean, there have been a number of high profile prison escapes where you've got not, not tens but thousands of Taliban and Al-Qaeda, ex-convicts, right, now who have gone into the hinterlands and joined these various forces. Um, that's sort of, well, that's one part of the Pakistan story, but I'll just sort of leave it at that. Mm-hmm.
4: I think uh, this is a very, very difficult relationship. Um, <clears throat> it's an important country. It has the nuclear weapon. And it's a big country, and it's in a great deal of turmoil. Government doesn't work very well. It's important because we must not let the terrorists get their hands on those nuclear weapons. That is a catastrophic event. Uh, It's important today because uh, our supply uh, train goes through Pakistan to furnish our troops in Afghanistan. We have great irritations with Pakistan. It's very hard for any of us to believe that they didn't know about Osama bin Laden's den. Uh, that's a question probably we'll never learn, who who, who knew it and at what levels. Uh, they play a double game with the Taliban. They see the Taliban as a wedge. They, they, they understand America's withdrawing from the region. The Taliban is their wedge that they're going to use to uh, keep their influence in Afghanistan. So you, you can chalk up the commonalities and the differences. The relationship is extraordinarily difficult. I, I sometimes think that top American officials commute to Pakistan. I mean, it's it, it, not too many weeks go by that you do not see a very top-level American official there. And that's been going on now for a year. And we've struggled and we've struggled with this relationship. We're not going to solve it. This is a relationship that has to be managed uh, as best it can, recognizing the interests that are involved, and it will not be easily uh, resolved. So you manage it, you don't resolve it. Mm
3: -hmm. Bob? Well, um, one of the things I think it's very important to remember is how important having essentially the freedom to organize and operate with a base that existed for a group like the PLO in Lebanon and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And one of the things we've learned over the last 30 years or so is that when the Israelis went into Lebanon and drove the PLO out and when we went into Afghanistan and made it much much more difficult for al-Qaeda to operate, it did have an important and positive effect in terms of security uh, of the United States, in terms of hindering people's, uh, those groups' ability to organize and operate. And I think that dovetails with uh, what the other speakers have said in terms of how important Pakistan is and how important it is for us to pay attention to what happens there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have just under three minutes
0: to go, and uh, Congressman Hamilton, I wanted to ask you about the the commission report, and if you could point out one or two things that you think have been really left undone that you believe are very important to have have the U.S. Bob, I can't get it all
4: in three minutes. I know, Mm -hmm. I know. Number one, we still haven't solved the problem of how to communicate at the scene of the disaster among the first responders. Mm -hmm. This is an outrage, pure and simple. Shame on us that we haven't solved it. Ten years after 9-11, they cannot talk with one another. We have not solved the problem of unity of effort, of unity of command. Somebody has to be in charge. We've made some improvements in both of these areas, but we haven't solved it. We haven't solved the civil liberties problem. Congress has not made the differences, the changes it needs to make in oversight. Congress agreed with us on everything except those recommendations pertaining to the Congress. (laughs) And they they totally ignored those. Uh, We have made substantial progress in sharing of intelligence, but we're not exactly where we ought to be. Uh, I worry about a lot of things, but the thing I worry about most is not the most likely, but it is the most consequential. And that is the nuclear materials, anthrax, resin, and other things getting into the hands of the terrorists. And there is a new threat, cyber threat. Mm-hmm. That can be by state or it can be by one individual. And we in this country are extremely vulnerable to an attack, a cyber attack, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, you got it in two minutes. <laughs> and, uh, thank you very much. I, I did want to mention that the 9-11 Commission will be convening here on the IU campus on September the 15th. So that's next week. And uh, The public know, is? The public is invited to attend.
4: First time they've come together in a public setting since we disbanded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be I'm – I'm anxious to hear what they have to say about uh, – uh, our recommendations and how they see events that mm-hmm. have occurred. Right. It
1: speaks to their respect for you. Thank you for bringing them to Indiana.
0: Yes, thank you. Well, I want to thank uh, all of our guests today and thank all of our listeners from around the state. We've been talking with, well, we had on the phone earlier, Safa Zarzour from the, uh, the Secretary General for the Islamic Society of North America, here with us in Bloomington today, 9-11 Commission Vice Chairman Lee Hamilton, and also two sociologists, Bob White from IUPUI and Mark Ham. From Indiana State University, you've been listening to Noon Edition. Thank you. I'm Bob Salzberg. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, thank you for listening.